Well, open your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 5, and we'll get right into the uh, message here in just a moment. I wanted to mention to you that uh, these uh, Wednesday night services are being recorded, and they are on the Bellevue's website. So uh, if you'd like to, if you weren't here the first couple of weeks and would like to go back and listen, uh, you can do that. Just go to the media page at Bellevue.org, and they'll be on there along with the other uh, messages from uh, Brother Steve and others, uh, women's ministry and all that. They're all on the same page. So if you're interested in that or know somebody that can't come on Wednesday nights but would like to listen, you can um, send them that information. That would be wonderful. All right, now tonight we're already in the third message uh, of this series on Exodus. Exodus is one of the most exciting books in all the Bible. There's so many great and marvelous things that happen in the book of Exodus, and we're going to see three of them tonight, uh, major, major episodes in the life and history of ancient Israel. We're going to look at uh, the plagues, we're going to look at the Passover, and then, of course, the Exodus itself, that is, the departure of the people of God from Egyptian slavery. Um, point number one, the plagues, God demonstrates His power. God demonstrates his power. And this is Exodus chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And we're going to read uh, here, uh, starting at verse 1, just a few verses from chapter 5. All right, so let's begin there, and we'll read verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword." Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, uh, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So here's what's happening. You remember as we've studied uh, this in uh, the last couple of weeks, God calls Moses to deliver his people. Moses reluctantly goes back to Egypt. He's been in Midian for 40 years. He goes back to Egypt, and he and Aaron go to see the king, the Pharaoh. And they have this first encounter with Pharaoh, and it does not go well. They go in, and they begin to talk to Pharaoh, and they say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord? And why should I listen to the Lord? I don't know who the Lord is. So Pharaoh, instead of granting the request of Moses and granting the demand of God, instead makes their work even harder. 
That is, he uh, tells them then that they will no longer be given straw to make the bricks. They've still got to make the bricks, but now they've got to find their own straw and make the same number of bricks that they had been making before. So when the people hear about this, they confront Moses about it. Look, look down at uh, verse 19, and, um, and we'll see actually verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there. These are the Israelites, the leaders of the Israelites. They, stood, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us an ab- and made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in his sight in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. So you see what's happening here. Moses does not get the answer that he wants. So instead of that, the people get more work piled on them. Then they find Moses and they say, Moses, what is up, dude? You've you've just caused this. You've not delivered us. You've caused our work to go harder and even be worse on us than before. So Moses hears that complaint and he really understands it because that's not what he had hoped would happen. So he takes it to the Lord. And in verse 22, he says, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? Now, Moses asked some good questions here, doesn't he? Have you ever asked God why? Why did this happen? Why did you let that happen? Why did something not happen? Have you ever asked God that question? Well, if you have, you're in good company because that's what Moses was asking of the Lord. Why did you bring me here? Why haven't you done what, what uh, I've asked Pharaoh to do? Why haven't you done it? What you told me to, to say to Pharaoh. And neither, verse 23, have you delivered your people at all. In other words, everything that you told me in the desert, when you call me to do, I've done, but you haven't kept up your part of the bargain. That's a pretty strong accusation against God, isn't it? And so God had to straighten Moses out, which he begins to do in chapter 6. And so let's look uh, on down at uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. This is really key to understanding what's going on between God and Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. That is, I am Yahweh or Jehovah, the name that he revealed himself to Moses by at the burning bush. I am the Lord. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. He's going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, I've given this land to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And look at verse 5. And I also, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. God reveals more about what he's going to do to Moses. It isn't that Moses was going to have success with the first visit that he had to Pharaoh. God had other things in mind. He did not tell Moses about all of that at first, but now he's revealing more of what he's going to do. And so he says, I'm going to make Pharaoh so upset with all of this that he's going to force you to leave. Not just let you leave, he's going to kick you out of Egypt, but it's going to take a while for that to happen. But you go back and you tell the children of Israel these truths. I am the Lord. Remember, Israel, who you're dealing with. Remember who I am. And here's what I'm going to do for you. Did you see all the I wills that he said, starting in verse 6? I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. Verse 7, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. In other words, I'm the Lord. I can do this. What looks impossible to men is possible for me because there's nothing too hard for God. So when you think about me, Israelites, I want you to think about who I am. I want you to think about the promises that I'm making to you. And I want you to remember in the midst of all of this, I am working out the plan that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the generation that is going to experience all of the promises that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you will just listen to me, I'm going to do this for you. God is committing himself to blessing his people. It reminds me, going back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first called Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here, God is widening that out. And he's saying to these two million people who are uh, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there in Egypt, he's saying to them, I will do all of these things for you. You just trust me. I'm going to perform what I have promised to do. And God still keeps his promises, doesn't he? He's still a promise-keeping God. He's promised that he would, uh, he promised way back then that he would send a Savior one day. He did that. He promised that that Savior would die on the cross and rise from the dead. All of that happened. He promised that one day he would come again, and that's going to happen as well. You look around today, really seriously, you look at all that's happening in the Middle East and other places, and you see God's time clock is moving, I believe, closer and closer to the coming of the Lord, and God will keep his promises. He always has. He always will. He is not a man that he should lie. He is the great I am. So we have here now what I want you to see next is uh, this big section in Exodus about the plagues. 
So in order for Pharaoh to get to the point where he's ready to kick the Israelites out of Egypt, there are a series of bad things that happen to the Egyptians. So I want to give these to you. There's 10 of them. I'm going to give you the single verse reference where you will find each of these. If you'd like to write it down, then go back and look at it later. Um, Why did God send the plagues? He sent them in order to demonstrate his power to redeem his people and also to demonstrate his power over the false gods of the Egyptians. Every one of these 10 plagues is a direct confrontation and victory over an Egyptian false god or goddess. That's why God did them specifically the way he did and for the purpose he did. The Egyptians were like the Babylonians. They were just rampant idolaters. They had a God for everything you could think of and a lot of things that you and I couldn't think of. They had a God or a goddess and and sometimes several for the same thing. But here, here are the 10 plagues that God sends. First of all, he turned water into blood, and that is in chapter 7 and verse 20. Chapter 7 and verse 20, and Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, he starts off with a really gross plague. A lot of people faint at the sight of blood. Other people just don't like to see it. But if you can think of any substance or liquid that is more prone to people being scared of or skittish about, I could think of nothing that would top blood. It, it just, it's just kind of eerie to look at. And think about, well, just think about it like this. If you and I drove down to the Mississippi River tonight and it was blood, you'd be on the phone with somebody, wouldn't you? Or you'd be taking pictures. You'd be putting that on social media because that is something to see. Well, they didn't have all that back then, of course. But they they did realize that um, Moses was able to do, at God's command, what God said for him to do. So the first plague, water to blood, is a direct victory over a god named Hapi, H-A-P-I. I guess you could say happy, but <laughs> anyway, H-A-P-I, who was the god of the Nile. Now, the Nile River was the lifeblood for the people of Egypt. The, the uh, river provided water for them to drink. Uh, it provided the delta the land that enriched the land so that they could grow the crops uh, and other things that they needed to eat and to clothe themselves, uh, and to the first plague to address that most important part of Egyptian life uh, was a shot across the bow to Pharaoh. Secondly, there was the plague of frogs, 
And this is in chapter 8 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. And that's exactly what happened. He was confronting and defeating a goddess by the name of Hecate, H-A-K-E-T, who was the Egyptian goddess of fertility, who was depicted in ancient Egyptian writings uh, and artwork as a person with a, with a head of a frog. And then you have in chapter 8 and verse 16, you have lice. The third plague, it's the plague of lice. Chapter 8, verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout the land of Egypt. Lice uh, arose uh, from this dust of the land, and the dust of the land was supposedly controlled by the god of the earth in Egyptian uh, religion, and that god's name was Seb, S-E-B. S-E-B is in boy. And so here's the third pagan god or goddess of Egypt that has been defeated. Then you go to chapter 8 and verse 21, and you see the next one, which is flies. Look at uh, verse 21 right there in the same chapter. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Every once in a while, we'll have a fly in our house. One single fly. And do you know what we do? We get out the fly swatter and we do our best to send that fly to the happy hunting ground. We do not want even one fly in our house. Can you imagine having swarms of flies in your house and you can't even think, well, I'll get away from these flies by going outside. They're all over outside and they cover the ground. You can't even walk anywhere without stepping on flies. This is a direct confrontation with the fly god. I told you they had all kinds of gods. They had a fly god in Egypt. The name of this god, I'll have to spell it for you because I don't know how to pronounce it. U-A-T-C-H-I-T. All right, so... You have the fly god, and God defeats the fly god through this plague. Then next you have chapter 9 and verse 3, and that is the plague of uh, pestilence on the cattle. On the cattle. And uh, let me read that verse. Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. This was a victory over the Egyptian goddess 
whose name was Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R, who was depicted in ancient Egyptian art as a woman with a cow head. Man, I don't know how they came up with this. Well, I'll tell you how. Straight from the pit of hell is where it's from. Uh, Then let's go to the next one, chapter 9 and verse 9. And it is the plague of boils. And it is in 9.9. And it will become fine dust. Well, let's look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. And it will cause boils that break out in sores on a man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Wow. Now, I've never had a boil. I had lots of other things, but I've never had a boil. But I've talked to people who've had them, and they are not fun. Can you imagine having several on your body at once? This was a direct victory over the Egyptian goddess of disease, and her name is spelled S-E-K-H-M-E-T, Sekhmet, I guess. So God is greater than their goddess of disease. Then we go to verse 18 of the same chapter. And like I say, in the outline that I prepared for you, all of this was there. So we'll bring them next week, okay? So if you would like to have it then, you can have it then. Uh, the next one is in chapter 9, verse 18. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. So this was a victory over the Egyptian goddess whose name is spelled N-U-T. <laughs> That's appropriate, isn't it? I mean, you got to be nuts to believe all that stuff. And yet Romans 1 explains exactly why they did stuff like this. Because they exchanged the glory of God for that which is not glorious. They exchanged the glory of God to worship creatures and crawling things instead of looking up into the heavens, seeing the sun, the moon, and the stars, and realizing it had to be created, therefore there must be a creator. He's a God of power who can create this universe. He's a God of splendor. He is a God of order. They rejected the knowledge of God, and so instead, they exchanged the glory of God for all of this false pagan worship. The next one is the plague of locusts. It's in chapter 10 and verse 4. Chapter 10 and verse 4. Or else... If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth and they will eat the residue of what is left which remains to you from the hail and they shall eat every tree which grows up for for you out of the field. 
So what the hail did not destroy, the locusts are going to come and devour. So the Egyptians now are losing everything. Their animals have been killed. Their crops have been destroyed. So they are in really bad shape. The locusts were sent as a direct victory over the Egyptian god whose name is Serapis, S-E-R-A-P-I-S. Serapis, the god of protection, listen to this, the god of protection from locusts. Now that god, obviously, is a false god. <laughs> yeah. And then the next one is in verse 21 of chapter 10, and it is the plague of darkness. Chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. In most of these plagues, the first three, uh, apparently the Israelites encountered some of those. But from there on, all of these happened only to the Egyptians. So it was dark in one part of Egypt, but sunlight in Goshen where the Israelites lived. It was so dark, God said, I want them not only not to be able to see, I want them to feel the darkness. You know, we live in a city or maybe nearby in in an area where there's always some kind of light. There's, uh, at night, there's light from somebody's house, or there's uh, maybe light from above, the moon and the stars or whatever. But uh, this indicates that there was no light at all for three full days and nights. This was a direct victory over the Egyptian god whose name was Ra, R-A, Ra. He was the god of the sun. And God, God showed the Egyptians that he was more powerful than the false god of the Egyptians. And then the final one, the final plague is death. And that is found in chapter 11 and verse 5. Well, let me read verse 4 also. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight... I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. So this is the plague of death. This was the last one. This was the ultimate plague, which caused Pharaoh finally to realize he was up against the Lord God of heaven who he, whom he could not defeat with any of his magicians or sorcery or any of his false gods. Now, because it hit home in Pharaoh's palace where his own son was killed that night, he finally had all he could take. 
This is a direct confrontation against Pharaoh who proclaimed himself to be a god. And therefore, his firstborn son was called the son of God. But God showed him ultimately, fully, finally at this point, there's only one true and living God. And he has power over the false God of the Pharaoh of Egypt. We serve, dear friend, the only true and living God. And anyone who worships any other God other than the Lord God of heaven, eternally existent in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, anyone who worships any other God is guilty of idolatry. They are worshiping a loser. They are worshiping something that Satan himself has come up with and has tried his best and has succeeded in so many places in the world for thousands of years to trick people, to deceive people into worshiping him or worshiping objects that are anything other than the holy, living, loving God of heaven. So those are the plagues. And in those plagues, God demonstrates his power. Secondly, we're going to see now the Passover. Point number two is the Passover. God reveals his protection. God reveals his protection. Now, we are in chapter 12 now, and we're going to be looking to spend the rest of our time in chapter 12 because this is where God uh, describes for Moses the, the Passover and how the children of Israel are going to be spared death in their houses if they will do what God commands them to do. And so let's look here at the instructions uh, in chapter 12, it's verses 1 through 27. We won't read all of these verses, but here is what I want to read with you. Look with me at verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons." Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Verse 7, you shall put on, uh, you shall uh, slay the lamb. Uh, let me read that again at the end of verse 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Verse 11, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, 
I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Israel. God says, death is going to reign in Israel in every house except the house that has been obedient to me and applied the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and over the top part of the entrance of the house, the lintel, so that when I pass through the land of Egypt, I will pass over the houses where there has been blood applied to the house. So what you see here is God commanding his people to look for a substitute to die in their place. To every Israelite home where that blood was applied, death was not in that home among the people or any of the animals other than that one sacrificial lamb. That lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the month. They were to keep it in their home for four days until the 14th day of the month, just long enough for the parents and the children to grow attached to the lamb, to love the lamb, to hug the lamb, to have the lamb in their home for four days. God did that intentionally for them to love this lamb and to feel the pain of the sacrifice that was necessary to deliver them from Egypt. 2,000 years ago, God sent his own son, the Lamb of God, about whom John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died on that cross, the Lamb of God, the perfect, sinless uh, Lamb of God, without blemish, without fault, perfect in every way, dying in our place on that cross as our substitute, he was fulfilling then what he had shown over and over again throughout the years of the Old Testament era that it was necessary for the shedding of blood, for sin to be forgiven, and that sacrifice was a painful one, a powerful one, and it was one that hurt the Lord Jesus Christ immensely. It hurt God the Father because he turned his face away from his own son who was dying on that cross. It was a painful experience for the Lord Jesus Christ, awful, awesome, uh, anguish, excruciating pain, and yet the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured in the Passover lamb long ago with Moses and the children of Israel. So we have demonstrated for us there in the Passover, the picture of the gospel. And now I want you to see what they did when Moses gave them this, these instructions. Look down at verse 27. You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. See the difference there, the contrast. He struck the Egyptians 
and he delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped, and so should we. When we think about what Jesus did for us when he delivered us by the blood of his own son. And then look at verse 28. Then the children of Israel went away and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. What were they doing there? They were obeying the word of God and demonstrating faith. They were obeying the word of God. God said, do this. And therefore they did it by faith, believing that the blood that was applied to their homes would deliver them from death. How is a person saved today? By faith. By the grace of God, nobody deserves salvation, but it is by faith because of God's grace. And then look at verses 29 and 30. You see God's judgment on Pharaoh's house, and it came to pass that at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Horrible for the Egyptians. But it was necessary because Pharaoh had hardened his heart and refused to hear and obey the word of God. Not only he, but the entire Egyptian nation suffered terribly because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. But then we come to point number three, and that is the exodus. God delivers his people. So the title of the message tonight is The Plagues, the Passover, the Exodus. We're at the Exodus now where God delivers his people. And let's look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 12. And he, that's Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go Serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Here's Pharaoh finally giving in, but asking for a blessing from Moses. And then look at the favor of God that he gave them in the eyes of the Egyptians. Look down at verse 35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so not only are the Israelites delivered from Egypt, they also leave with the goods that God favored them with through the hand of the Egyptians. They gave them gold and silver and clothing and all kinds of things, perhaps in partial payment for all those years that they were slaves. But God said, he promised them that he was going to do that, that he would send them out after having plundered the Egyptians. So finally, we come to this. 
Look at verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And then two more verses that summarize it are verses 50 and 51. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. It was a process from the time Moses began in the court of Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Probably took about nine months for all that to happen, judging by the kinds of plagues and the seasons of the year. But here is the great miracle of God delivering his people out of the land of Egypt, away from the bondage and slavery that they had been living in for hundreds of years. And eventually, and we'll see it later, they'll go across the Red Sea on dry ground and all of that. But this exodus, the Passover and the exodus, are two of the great events in the nation's history and two of the great events in the history of God's people. And we still celebrate them now, but even more than that, we celebrate the greater exodus, the greater deliverance, because now those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood at Calvary and His resurrection from the dead, we have deliverance for all of eternity, from our sins. And one day, praise God, we'll spend eternity in the presence of this God who loves us so much that he sent his son for God. So love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.